Hello and welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis and you're listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, and only saw closed doors. I call that Now, maybe you can see a glimmer coming through the windows, and I call that the windows of possibilities. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They've had their own struggles and their own uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their own way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into the space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for you? Really, ask yourself that. You can connect with me on my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com and you can sign up for my weekly newsletter which gets each of these interviews delivered directly into your inbox. In 2008, after the birth of their daughter Milligan, Adam Baker and his wife Courtney decided to sell everything they owned, paid off their consumer debt, and travel the world as a family. And the Baker's simple motto is, the first step to living a life of passion and purpose is to remove the barriers that hold you back. This journey leads to the creation, this journey led to the creation and work on manversusdebt.com. And Adam right now is finishing up a new project as the producer of I'm Fine Thanks, a feature-length documentary about complacency. It's a collection of stories about life, the choices we all make, and the paths we ultimately decide to follow. Adam, hello and welcome. Hey, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, this is great. So, why did you decide to do this documentary? Well, honestly, it came back first to wanting to work with the, the partner, who is the director in the film, Grant Peel. I mean, Grant and I met online, and our families became fast friends, and we kind of were just sitting around saying, I hope someday we get to work on a creative project together. You know, one of those things. You just click, and you want to work together. And he's been a excuse me. He's been a filmmaker at heart for about fifteen years or so, but has been putting it off and just you know going about life. Uh, he built a great life. He's got a great life, but he he's always wanted to be that filmmaker and has always put it off. On the same coin, uh, up until about three or four years ago, as you uh, politely put in the intro there, um, I I sort of was living that sort of default life path before I decided to kind of do things on my own for better or worse. So we were wanting to do a documentary or a TV show, but we just couldn't come up with the topic. And finally, we looked inside and we said, we should just do this on complacency, you know, on the stories of why we choose a certain way, what influences to choose a certain way, and how we kind of get stuck on paths. Uh, sometimes throughout life. So it started as just a partnership where we wanted to work on a creative project, and we ended up picking the topic because it was what resonated the most in our own lives. So it's kind of it's a very personal film for Grant's time. You know, it's so interesting because I, I think it's such an important question as we go through life thinking it's supposed to be, like you like to use that word script, right? Yep. It's kind of a script for us about... and and about what we're supposed to do in life, and then if we do this, we'll be happy. Yep. But we get to that point, and we're going, we're not happy. Yeah, exactly. And you know the script. Everyone knows the script. It's like, get good grades, mm-hmm. go to school. If you, get, if you go to school, then you'll, get, you'll have the, ple- the pleasure or the honor of getting to go into debt to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So you go into debt to go to college, then you get your degree, and that degree is what unlocks you know happiness for you because with that degree you can get a job and you can work for five years and get married and have two point five kids, and all of this is okay. Really, it is okay if that's what you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you really passionately want to be doing every step of that process, then it's great. I mean, I have two kids, and I, I mean, I love that step of the process. Uh, but I didn't necessarily love the college step of the process or my first <laughs> foray into business. And I did those things kind of more because that's what I expected society expected of me. I was, I guess, too afraid to decide what I wanted to do on my own. And so there were many people in my life, uh, and this is not just people, but, you know, pressures, outside societal pressures, that were willing to decide that path for me. You know what I mean? I kind of gave up control of my own life and just went along with the flow. Oh, I totally know what you mean. I was uh, I graduated from college, got into a master's degree, and by the time I was 29, I was a tenured college professor. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand. That was yep. the path, right? It yep. was, oh, well, here's this path that we have laid for you. It's the, it's the Golden Brick Road. You may not want to be on here, but really, you have it really good. Yeah, exactly. It's a, and that's what complacency is, because complacency can't exist for someone um, who's in poverty, right? We're not fighting that issue. We're, we're, I, I joke that, well, I don't joke because we really aren't, but I say I'm not smart enough to fight that issue. I'm really not smart enough to fight that issue. I mean, that's a big issue. Someone's going to have to handle that. But once we get out of that life, and, and for me, I was born out of poverty. I mean, not out of poverty, but I've never been in poverty because of who I was born to and what country I was born into. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm fortunate enough to have all these great circumstances. And the best I could do up until a few years ago, it was just be like, yeah, you know, I'm just fine. You know, I'm just doing okay. With all of the abundance I've been given, that was the best result I could get. And that was kind of uh, saddening, and that's why we called the the documentary I'm Fine Things, because it was just that sort of cultural, cultural malaise, if you will, you know. How are you, Karen? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. How are you, Adam? Oh, I'm fine. You know, it's just uh, we wanted to kind of rise above that if we could, try to figure out a way, explore stories of people who had are like, I'm excellent, I'm great, you know, I've never been better, and try to really focus in on, on how they got there. And when you were fine, Adam, were, were you fine, but kind of like living in the blahs? Exactly. That's exactly what I was. Uh, somebody put this really well on the road tour. Her name is Pace Smith. She's, mm-hmm. she's actually in the documentary, but she said, it's like, the, it's like the curse of the sevens, I think she said. And I said, the curse of the sevens? What are you talking about? And she said, on a happiness or a fulfillment scale, whatever word you want to use, She's like, the most dangerous place most people can be is a 7 out of 10. And I kind of was following along with her, and then I, I got it as she went on to explain it. She said, if you're a 2 or a 3 on the happiness scale, like if you're really, really unhappy or your life has some really big problem, it's not actually that hard to change because you have such a good force to move away from. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can rally around that and improve your life. And if you're a 9 or a 10, there's no reason to change. But the most dangerous spot is to be a 7 because you're comfortable. You don't want to lose. You don't want to kind of, you don't want to have to give up a little bit in order to get to that 9 or 10. And so people just kind of get to that level where they're blah, as you said, or mm-hmm. fine. That 6 or that 7 out of 10 in their life, and they just, boop, they just uh, cruise control for the rest of their life. They just set it right there, and they're like, well, it's not too bad, but it could be worse. I'm just going to ride this out. And uh, that's that's exactly where I was um, uh, up until the birth of my daughter. I remember being 25 when I was on that 10-year track and thinking, I remember driving down the road to my house going, is this my life? 
Mm-hmm. Right. And then I w- and the thing that scared me so much was, is this as good as it can get? Yep. And it, for so many people, they would say, well, you know, you especially why would you leave your job in this kind of economy? Or, you know, you've got this tenure job, you have a job for life, you have a pension, right? Really, is your life that bad? Yep. And, yep. and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was uh, that's such a big issue. And you're one of the first people that's actually brought, up, brought that up to me. And that's a big issue we're dealing with with the film is, uh, we don't want to come across as like, oh, you should ask for pity, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you do say that, you're like, I'm unhappy with my life, the cultural response around you, as you just pointed out, is like, oh, you should be happy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you shouldn't want more. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're being selfish or you're asking for pity or, like, you know, you have everything you want. Well, what am I supposed to feel sorry for you? And that's not at all what it's about. It's about personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's about saying, I am unhappy, I'm okay admitting that, I'm, I'm okay admitting that, I have a lot, but I am unhappy, what can I do to get myself in that fulfillment, what can I do, what can I do that really makes me come alive, and understanding that the choice is all on you, I mean, pity comes from a spot if you're like, oh, my life is terrible, and here are all the reasons that it is terrible outside of my control, you know, my job's is bad, my boss is mean, I can't change it. That's that's when you start to get in the pity party, and that's not what we're all about. We're about, you made those choices to get yourself in that life, and you can make the choices to get out. And I think it's wonderful that you brought that up, um, because it's an issue that we're dealing with. We don't at all want this to come across as, oh, feel sorry for me, the privileged person. It's, I have so much privilege, why am I not happy? And what can I do to actually get to that, that state? Does that make sense? It makes total sense. Well, I mean, because you're much nicer than I. I. You call it the script. I call it the lie. <laughs> yeah. You know, as a, as, and you have daughters, right? And you're married uh-huh. to your wife. But as a girl, I, the message that I receive and many of my clients or my listeners have received through the years is be a good girl, follow the rules, get good grades, get into a really good university, and then get married and live happily ever after and have this career, right? And be, and I'm, I'm about to turn 40, so I was the woman, the girl of the 70s of you can do it all, right? Fried up in a bacon, bring it home in a pant, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but I call it the lie because I, I went through and I achieved, achieved, achieved. And then I got there and I went, but I'm not happy. So yeah. I sacrificed a lot of stuff because of this end result that didn't come true. We're seeing that all over, and I've got an example of a story of, of a woman. I certainly can't identify with all the issues she's going through, but I can identify a lot with them as a parent. She was an attorney in Texas. She is an attorney in Texas, and uh, she had worked her whole life to prove that she could cut it, basically. <laughs> and as she described, especially with a law degree, that she could cut it as a woman. You mm-hmm. know, that she was a powerful, successful uh, woman, she she did well in college, got her law degree, got a job with the uh, state, so she wasn't even having to work the, the complete amount of hours that a partner has to work necessarily. When she tried, she she had like basically a cushiony job, if you will. I mean, mm-hmm. she had to work hard, but she was working for the state. She had a, she had a well sought after job. All of her friends were attorneys. She's she was respected. She was a powerful woman, and she had a kid. She had a daughter. Mm-hmm. And when she had her daughter, she actually even went back to work because she said when she when her daughter was a baby, she was like excited to get back to work because that's where kind of she felt alive. Uh, and she had worked so much, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, by the way, to mm-hmm. get there. Um, so she's there, she's working. It's just been her first few years when she has her kid, and her kid starts to get older. 
and her kid starts walking and talking, and I'm kind of paraphrasing her long, her long interview, but she realizes very quickly that um, she's madly in love with her kid, of course, and not only that, but she wants to actually stay home with her kid. If she could do anything, she would stay at home with her daughter now, and it completely rocked her world because that was not her paradigm at all for the last, for that other path that she was on that she was just going through the motions and just getting that law degree because she didn't know what she wanted to do and she knew if she could become a successful lawyer, she'd be well-respected. All of this kind of burden that she carried. Um, and she broke down in tears at the second question we asked her. And, and, and she had us crying. I was the interviewer. I was tearing up. And uh, she just said, like, I can't even stay home with my daughter because I have this house at this point. I'm $100,000 in debt. And she said it herself. No one should feel sorry for me. You know what I mean? I'm an attorney. You know, I have a, I have a profession that can provide for my family, but it's not all that it's necessarily cracked up to be if, you, if you're on the outside looking in. If you don't know, you know, the, the situation here in my shoes, then, then it's very hard to know sort of what we're going through. And, and, and her challenge was, I don't know what I want to do, but I know I want to be with my daughter more, and I can't because of all of these choices I've made over the past few years. And as a parent myself... Um, it really pulled my heartstrings, and uh, and I could I, I could even identify with her struggle as a woman, even not being a woman. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I could understand that through my wife, maybe understand that pull to be that career versus stay at home, and whether she stayed at home, whether all of her attorney friends would think she sold out, and all this kind of stuff. It was just a great, great example of one of the stories we had on the road. Well, she. It sounds like she was fed the script of this is what you need to do, right? And, exactly. and she went and, and then she wound up making choices that put her kind of in her own prison, right? Financially and with the house. She, yeah, and and she, what she wanted to do with her time. Yeah. You know, everyone would look at her on the outside and say, wow, I'm so jealous. You have an amazing life. I mean, you did everything right. You should be happy. But for her, and that's the key, right? For her, she's not right now because, mm-hmm. because those choices weren't all authentically hers. So even though somebody else may be very happy in her shoes, and that's great, for her, those choices weren't, weren't authentically hers, and that, that was the problem, I think. This is Corinne Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It. I'm talking with Adam Baker, and we're talking about his documentary, I'm Fine, Thanks, and you can also find him on his website, manversusdebt.com. Um, so, Adam, when, for you, what was the, what was, was it, what was the, well, I know the answer to this, but for my listeners, what was the switch that, what was the catalyst that made you get off of the script? Yeah, so my wife and I were, were big proponents of the script. And you know what? When we were on the script, we used to make fun of other people that were living that script. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying the word script a lot. But we used to look around and look, make fun of them. Look at all the stuff they're buying, you know. Look at how they're just, you know, going off and trying to climb the corporate ladder. And I thought I was so cool because I had failed out of college and started a real estate business, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not climbing the corporate ladder. I'm going to make it on my own. But what I didn't realize is it's just as easy to trap yourself in an entrepreneurship rat race mm-hmm. than it is to trap yourself at a rat race in a 9-to-5 job. Mm-hmm. Just as easy. I might argue that it's, it's even easier <laughs> to trap yourself in, an entrepreneur, in, an, uh, in a business pursuit. Uh, and that's exactly what I had done with the real estate business. Um, I was working about 80 to 100 hours a week. I was completely and utterly trapped, climbing, chasing. And I, once again, not because I necessarily wanted to do everything that I was doing, but just because I was so um, 
desired of success and the outward version, the outward view of success, right? I didn't want. I failed out of college, but I was going to prove to everyone that I could be successful, and I could cut it on a level that would be even better than how I finished college. Okay, so that's my mindset where I'm at. Courtney is a first-year teacher, so she's graduated college, and as a first-year teacher, has a tremendous boatload of responsibility, and and is on the lowest end of the totem pole. So she's got to get started. She's got to understand how she wants to teach. She's got to get lesson plans created. It's just crazy amount of work in our lives. We're just go, go, go. We're hectic, hectic, hectic. We're $18,000 in consumer debt. We have an apartment full of crap we don't need. <laughs> and we decide, well, we decide we're going to get married and get pregnant <laughs> because that's just what you do. And it was so crazy anyway. We just, It was just a blur. But then we brought our daughter home from the hospital, and you alluded to that earlier. And the night, that it was actually the night we brought her home from the hospital. We got her to sleep. We fought to get her, got, we fought to get her asleep, excuse me, and uh, then we sat down around our kitchen table, and we said, wow, you know, we have another life form now. And it really provided us the clarity to step back from that day-to-day grind. When we were in the day-to-day grind, um, it was impossible to see the forest from the trees, if you will. I mean, it was impossible to get have clarity on anything because it was just like, okay, I'll watch one TV show before I go to bed, and then i got to get up at 6 a.m. Unless somebody calls in the middle of the night with a real estate problem, property management problem, then I have to get up then. And it was just, there was always boom, 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 next, 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 next. And so we could never step back. But bringing her milk and home from the hospital, we did step back, and we realized that we weren't living the path that, that – we wanted to. If we could choose our path, it wouldn't look anything like the path we were on. And we realized that we were kind of the people that we were making fun of on the side. Like, we were living that life that we were making fun of, and that was very eye-opening for us. So, we we set a goal, um, and that was, by the time my daughter turned one, so we had one year, we wanted to spend a year backpacking Australia with our daughter. That was our goal. And we said, in order to do this, we can't have two homes. We're not going to keep all of our home and our debt and our <laughs> responsibility over here. If, if we're going to accomplish this goal, we're going to have to get rid of all this. So we said we're going to pay off our $18,000 in debt. We're going to sell everything we own down to two backpacks. We're going to, Courtney's going to finish out the teaching year, but then, then take a leave of absence from teaching. I'm going to quit and exit from my real estate uh, responsibilities. And we're just going to do this. And so over the next year, we set about that goal. And that's kind of how I got started actually with a blog. That's how I got started with this next chapter of my life. Well, and for your um, the people you interviewed on your film, the I'm Fine Thanks, you have had uh, Jonathan Fields, Danielle Laporte, Pam Slim. Um, those are all people that have been guests on the show and my listeners are familiar with. Um, but what about, and what was was there a common thread of complacency and a catalyst for that complacency with these different guests? And maybe not those in particular, you know, because some of my listeners are very familiar with their journeys. But was there, you know, a catalytic moment? Was it having kids? Was it, you know, because Jonathan Fields was this attorney in New York City, right, who decided yeah. that this wasn't the life for him. And, um, exactly. So, you know, and Pam wanted – go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, there's a little bit of a delay. I didn't mean to cut you off. So, yeah, there was, um, I would say about 80% of the time, there is a very specific moment that people can tie it to. I won't say all of the time, because sometimes people just decide. Like, they just decide that they're going to do it, and they take an action. So they could correspond their breaking point with the action that they took, but really they just decided over, you know, several years or several months. But 
most of the time, there is a very, very tangible breaking point. Now, that breaking point doesn't always come and their life change. Like for us, it took a year of really hard work to get to the point where we could board the plane for Australia. Mm-hmm. So we could have two kind of breaking points. One was when we sat down and decided. And that was when my daughter was born. And two was when we boarded the plane for Australia, right? Because mm-hmm. until we walk on that plane, our life's not really, like, fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a couple different pivot points, if you will, is what I'm saying about the people we discovered. Jonathan, who you brought up, his pivot point was putting himself in the hospital from overworking. Yep. Yep. So he can, he can very easily say, as soon as I went in the hospital with the absence in my stomach from overworking, I knew I had to change. But even Jonathan, I, I believe, I'm the time frame right because from the interview it took about a year to be able to exit from his law practice so he made the decision but eventually one day he had to pack up and walk out as well and then Jonathan's story goes on to include him opening a yoga studio in the face of 9-11 uh, and that is just a crazy powerful story uh, he signed at least for a yoga studio mm-hmm. the day before 9-11 September 10th 2001 9-11 comes and goes, and he's got to decide whether he's going to open up this high-risky, never-done-before-for-him business studio in downtown Manhattan. And he decides that he's got to open it. There is no choice. Like Even more so than before 9-11, the, the city needs this in the downtown space. So um, he decides to open the studio. So there's two, you know, again, two pivot points for Jonathan. He quits, his, he quits law or puts himself in the hospital and decides to quit law. But then his opening up the yoga studio itself, I mean, that's a that mm-hmm. decision to go, I'm opening this, I'm going forward with it, is again another pivot point. So we I wouldn't I wouldn't say that everyone had one, but most people had one or two major turning points in their life where it's the straw that broke the camel back camel's back. It's like something happened that finally triggered that uh, that change in them and resulted in an action. But I should say this that I've never seen anyone decide something and then their life changed without specifically changing that to an action right away. Do you know what I mean? So it was it was not about a moment where you just sit down and go, I'm gonna lose weight. You know, it's <laughs> it's the moment where you decide that and you take a specific action to follow up on that and then that one action builds into a habit of actions. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. I call that practice on the show. You need there to you go, go and practice and you'll get better. Um no, and and I and I the Jonathan Fields thing is very interesting because you know people can look at him now and go, well, you know, of course, right? I mean, that's why I do the show and it's an hour is because to debunk debunk the myth of the overnight success, yeah. or that you yep. know he was the chosen one, right? When he yep. left that law practice, and I can't remember where it came out in his little journey, but at one point, I think he left and he was wearing thousand dollar suits to go make twelve dollars an hour as a personal trainer. Absolutely. That's, right. that's the middle part of his journey that I didn't say. Yeah. yeah. He, left about, he left behind all of that just to work basically very basic minimum wage uh, at, at, a, at something that he was much more passionate about. Yeah, and that's, and that's where it is scary. I mean, and he was pragmatic about it, right? He saved up money. I mean, there, was, there were steps that he took, and I think those are important steps in everybody's journey to go, okay, well, he didn't have this idea. Maybe he had this idea, but I don't recall in the interviews that we've done 
where it was, yes, I'm going to become Jonathan Fields, right? This well-known <laughs> yeah, yeah. speaker and writer. I'm going to write two best-selling books or whatever. No, I mean, yeah, that's not that's not the guy. That's not what he put on for me either. Now, like you said, I look at him and he's a mentor of mine. I think he's just an absolute genius. Mm-hmm. But we have to go back, like you pointed out, and realize that he didn't get that way. He didn't just mm-hmm. quit law and was like, I'm going to become a genius and help a bunch of people. Like, he uh, he had a process that he went through mm-hmm. um, in his own life that reflected that. And that's just amazing. A good point to bring up. <laughs> just arrive to the status that he has today. Well, because I think that gets that's so often the myth that gets put out there, right? Of oh, well, of course that that could happen to them, but I'm just this bozo, or I, you know, they people can't see the steps. And I think it's about and please correct me where I'm wrong, Adam, but I think it's about having agility. It, you're not maybe knowing exactly how the next step is going to lay out. Like maybe maybe when you you know, it doesn't sound like to me, Adam when you guys decided that you're going to spend a year in, in Australia, that you're going to be doing a documentary film three years later. <laughs> no, or even that we'd only spend about three weeks in Australia, which is what it turned out to be, you know, mm-hmm. in our story. So, like you do, for me, it's all about um, flexibility and agility. Mm-hmm. And the, the specific things that we did for that were tangible. The tangible is what started for us. We paid down our debt, and we sold a bunch of our crap. And we had that physical flexibility in our life came first but more important than that is the the mental flexibility right the ability to walk into the face of uncertainty fail and be able to bounce back with courage i mean that's what keeps many people trapped in jobs they hate is they're just they're just scared to fail they don't want to leave their job go out and do something and have to come back with their tail between their legs and and handle all the social pressure that's going to come along with that and the people that I know that have been successful in changing their life, whether they work for a job or not, so they don't have to be business people, they can just go and switch jobs, um, got the mental agility, if you will, or the, the confidence to say, I'm okay, I will be okay, even if I fail to get this job and I fail to get this job, I will find something, and I will be okay because because that's just how it's going to happen. I mean, I just have that flexibility in my life. I know it's going to be okay. I know this is the right decision for me, and now I'm just going to go fail a bunch. Mm-hmm. And when they're willing to go out and fail a couple times before they succeed, and they're confident in that failure, even despite failing, those are the people who seem to really make a difference in the world. Uh, again, whether that's through a business or whether that's through just working for a more fulfilled company and, and being, being their best employee, um, those people are, are comfortable with getting rejected and failing. And I think so many people in our culture are not comfortable with getting rejected or failing. And that's a really good point. So um, were you, because you mentioned earlier in this interview that you failed out of college, so were you comfortable with failing? Oh, jeez, not then. (laughs) 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 No, no, I fail all the time now, so uh, I I guess I'm accustomed to it. You know, I'm used to it. I'm used to moving through it. Uh, Jonathan Fields, in fact, as we talk about him so much, he calls it, he doesn't call it, like, conquering uncertainty. He calls it moving through uncertainty mm-hmm. uh, because you don't simply just overcome something. You just learn how to move through it. Then I didn't. You know, I went through a low point after filling out college where I worked at, I worked at McDonald's in a pizza place, if we're mm-hmm. being honest. So I opened McDonald's in the morning as a manager, and then I uh, closed a pizza joint as a manager. So I was a manager at two restaurants in my small hometown, and uh, the night manager at one, and sort of the morning manager at the McDonald's, and that only lasted a few months, but uh, but quickly taught me that I didn't want to be doing that for a very long time, and uh, and then and then 
only after several years of sort of a depression in my life did I come out of it and go, I'm going to go get my real estate license. I'm going to go kind of make it for myself. So uh, I, in no way, shape, or form was I born into some some sort of like I achieved everything since, you know, I turned an adult. Like it was a very long, drawn-out battle for me to become confident to where now if you tell me you can't ever blog again, you can't ever do a Skype interview again. You can't ever, you know, talk about personal finance or complacency ever again. Somehow, I wave a magic wand, and, and you're out on you're you're starting over. I'm extremely confident that I could provide for my family and help other people in a very short period of time now. And that's not just because I'm I'm cocky. I have no idea what I would do with it, and I'm not cocky at all. I know I would fail a lot, but I know that I have the tools and the resources, and most importantly, the flexibility to be able to go and do that again. And that's where it really comes from. Once you leave your job and you go get a different job, and you're like, well, I could just do that again. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, like, I've done it. I've proven to myself that this is not impossible. Like, I've tricked myself into thinking for the last decade. Like, this is very possible. I mean, people can go get jobs. People can shop around. People can start businesses. And once you learn that, then it comes with the, that's how you build the confidence. At least for me, in my life, that's how I build the confidence. You use the evidence of the steps that you took to help move you forward. Yeah, every every micro success mm-hmm. was like, oh, okay, well, I'm not a total loser, you know, <laughs> and it just, it just starts building that confidence. <laughs> well, okay, so I want to go back to when you were in McDonald's and was it Roundtable? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the pizza it wasn't round table. It was, a, it was a chain called Bellasinos. Actually, it's a, a local chain in Indiana. So when you're doing pizza and McDonald's, right? <laughs> it also sounds to me because that's sometimes where people get stuck. They define that as who they are. So how did you not allow that to define you as who you were? Um. Well, it did define me for a little bit, right? But not um, not for so the rest it, of your you know, life. But but um. I guess it was probably, you know, I don't know, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I've ever been asked that question in the last four years. But uh, I would say probably my circumstances, my friend group, my parent group. I mean, it, really it was. If I had come from a different <clears throat> a different circumstances where everyone around me was working those type of jobs, it would have been very hard for me mm-hmm. to to say, you know what, I'm better than that circumstance. I can help more people than I can by, by taking their order at McDonald's. You know what I mean? I, I can do something better for the world. But I came from parents who were very hardworking um, uh, and, and both dedicated uh, in their work. I came from a friend group that was um, very sort of dedicated and free-minded and free-spirited and, and, and really, you know, they didn't all go change the world right out of college or right out of high school, but they just sort of lifted me up to above that status of working at basically fast food. You know, that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about. I mean, working minimum wage service jobs in the restaurant industry, uh, I never thought that that was going to be, that, that I wanted that to be my highest purpose. And I know a lot of people who work those jobs for a long time never think that, that those are their highest purpose. But they, they, they do get stuck, and I guess it was probably the environment, the people in my life that uh, helped motivate me not to get stuck for a long period of time uh, in that environment. Well, yeah, because, you know, like as I did the intro, is that with the show, I want it to be the windows of possibility. 
right? Mm -hmm. So listen to the different people in their journeys and hear the different possibilities that are out there. Like for me, a long time, the only thing that I saw as possible was a job in education or as a, you know, and I was a, I was a teacher and a coach. So either in the athletic world or in the educational world in higher ed. And there's so, I mean, I'm still sometimes astounded when I think about all the different jobs that are out there and all the different ways that there are to make money. I knew one system really well, but so it sounds to me like you, because even though you were in that environment, you saw the windows of possibilities because of the, the support you had, your, the yes. environment you had outside of that work environment. Yes, that's a, <clears throat> that's a great point. It's well said. Like, I could, I could still see that there was possibility, those windows of possibility in my life because of the people that were in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and once again, had I come from a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, I don't want to say worse background, but had I come from a different background where the friends and family in my life, that's where they were sort of working and that's where sort of they, that, that's, that's as high as the, of the windows of opportunity went for me at the time, then I can, I can easily see how I would have been stuck. I mean, a lot of it is background where you come from. But at the same time, you can choose, I guess, who you spend your time with and, and some of the people in your life to a certain degree, and um, and uh, so I, w- I was proud that I had chosen friends that would uh, that would elevate me higher than that status that I was in. Well, and then for the people that are listening, you know, to the show and saying, well, that's great for, you know, Adam and Corinne, and mm-hmm. they have all these great people that they get to be connected with, but, you know, I'm over here in Loserville. I mean, the other side is, and you've mentioned this on your blog about, you know, TEDx talks and or TED talks, right? Those are great resources. I mean, there are so many free resources, whether it's your blog. I mean, there's so many different opportunities for people to get information or get that community that they want that they may not have in their current life, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of... Um it's the power of the online world is now your your core group of friends doesn't have to be who grew up on your street, mm-hmm. you know, with you locally. It's no longer regionally. Now, I'm not saying that 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 it can't be who grew up on your street, but I'm saying that we have the power of connectivity with other humans now that we've never had before, ever, mm-hmm. on this scale. And it's only getting better and better. It's only growing more rapidly. So if you like uh, somebody, a friend of mine, Cliff Ravenscraft, who does who's a podcasting professional, he has an example of a client he has. He used tiny wooden boats. And this guy runs a full-time business off of a podcast about tiny wooden boats. You figure that out. Because you couldn't do that if you grew up in the town that I grew in, right? Uh-huh. Like uh, Shelbyville, Indiana, population of 17,000. You're not going to be able to run a business on tiny wooden boats. Mm-hmm. But because of the power of the Internet, this guy can connect with other tiny wooden boat aficionados. And a lot of his friends and community and his business now runs around this this, this community that he's only able to connect with these people because there's, because he has that connectivity of the online world. And um, I, I, my advice on this topic is kind of harsh, and I've gotten some criticism for it, but it's basically you choose who you spend your time with. Mm-hmm. And if people are pulling you down, stop spending your time with them. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just literally ditch them. Ditch the, if they're pulling you down, if they're not building you up, Stop spending time now. You can't ditch your family. You can't ditch your spouse. <laughs> well, I, I don't could argue that. that. <laughs> <So> that <laughs> so, but you can spend your family are the type of people with who I try to dedicate years of my life communicating with. Right? Mm-hmm. Years of years and years of my life are spent communicating with my loved ones because that that's my family. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to dedicate to those people, trying to build those relationships. I'm trying to trying to be a better communicator myself. 
But if I just have some loser friends in my life, and I don't have many loser friends, but, I'm, but I've been in this place where I have had loser friends in my life. If I have a bunch of loser friends in my life, I can just stop hanging out with those people. Mm-hmm. I can just stop being friends with those people. And instead, I can go hang out with, and I can go make friends that are going to pull me up and, and, and make me accomplish. I mean, it's so cliche, but you have one life. Like, you literally have one life, and you, you get to choose most easily who you spend that time with, who you spend all of that extra time with. Mm-hmm. And the the biggest mistake I see from people, the biggest mistake I made in my life for years and years and years, was I spent it around the wrong people. And as soon as I started changing that, um, and as, as soon as I started developing better relationships with people, it just the possibilities go endless. It's just like there's a million windows of opportunity I feel in my life right now, all because of the people that I choose to spend my time with. So um, that can, again, that's a, it comes across as a little harsh for people, but it's basically. Ditch anyone that brings you down and go find people that pull you up, period. Like, kind of in the statement. This is Corinne Modekaitis, and you're listening to um, How She Really Does It. My guest today is Adam Baker. He's the producer of the feature-length documentary, I'm Fine Thanks, and he also has his website, manversusdebt.com. Um, Adam, when you talk about that, I, I think about where... It was probably a couple months after I started the show. And I started this show because I felt like I was messing up as a mom. And I couldn't, you know, how was I, that whole work-life balance, which I don't believe in anymore. But, um, <laughs> and, but, and so I figured there's got to be a better way, right? And that was kind of my, hence the How She Really Does It title. But anyways, um, about two or three months after that, one of the things that I wrote down was that I wanted to surround myself with more inspirational people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back then, my guests, I mean, and they were great guests. They were more local and stuff and not, the, you know, the names that I have these days. But, um, but it was interesting because I made a conscious decision, like what you're talking about, about wanting to change the trajectory of my life. You know, in thinking about who do I want to spend time with, so whether it's on the air or in my personal life. And the other thing I've had to come to terms with, and I'm wondering if this is the same for you, is being okay with being by myself or being okay, obviously, with being with my family and maybe not doing things socially with other people. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, it's, I think it's a give and take when you have a family mm-hmm. or you, know, you have a spouse. And um, I would say that it's, it's very hard. That's a, that's a challenge I know for most entrepreneurs. You know, and So I, I guess it's probably the case for for overworked employees as well, but as an entrepreneur, I can I can find myself very easily getting to a position where I'm overworked, and mm-hmm. then it's very hard for me to just spend t- still time with my family. And mm-hmm. As sad as that sounds, I mean, like I said, I'm not perfect. It's like, that's a very big struggle, I think, for many people who start to change their life because they get so sort of addicted and consumed by the process of doing that, that if your family is not completely on board with you, mm-hmm. like your, your, your intimate family, your spouse and your kids, if they're not completely on board with you, um, it can cause a lot of problems mm-hmm. because um, it can draw you away and it can disconnect you from from your immediate family. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have um, married the right person. Mm-hmm. I mean, just married an incredible human being that supports me in everything I do. And, like, when we move out to San Francisco to finish the documentary, um, even though we've just had our second child, she packs up and 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 she flies. Out. I had to fly out here early. Courtney gets on a plane with a one-month-old and a four-year-old and mm-hmm. flies out to San Francisco. 
to move into this house that's very up in the air, but we're together as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and without her being willing to do that, and her like just you know unwielding flexibility, and um, and then it just wouldn't be nearly as possible or worth it. So mm-hmm. uh, we've gotten to the case where it's not again. <laughs> It's like I feel like I have a disclaimer every few minutes. Like, it's not all good. You know what I mean? We have lots of struggles. Uh, but we're kind of decided to be on the crazy journey together. And mm-hmm. so uh, sometimes we're able to sit still and be together, but a lot of times we're, we're on the craziness together. And, and then the, But the important thing is we're still together. So we're, we're traveling around. We, when we did an RV tour around the U.S. to, help, to host meetups. Um, we were in that RV together, and, and most importantly, my daughter Milligan has, for the majority of her life, had access to both parents, mm-hmm. um, even though maybe I've been mentally disconnected much more than I should be uh, as a father. Like, I'm physically there. Mm-hmm. I'm physically around my family a lot more than I ever could have been four years ago mm-hmm. in the in the real estate industry that I was in, and that's something that we're sort of proud of, even if we're not quite good at taking time off and spending time together quiet yet that's something we're still working on yeah but i think i think that's i think that's just part of the process of practicing that i don't think we ever get that perfection down in parenting (laughs) yeah right (laughs) maturing a bit and and getting getting that as a habit uh down the road yeah and you know it's interesting because my kids are now 12 and 10 and over the last couple years, I mean, I'm very comfortable, you know, I make really conscious choices when I think about who do I want to surround myself with. I mean, my family is very high up there, my immediate family. And even more so because of my kids, like my daughter is finishing sixth grade at the end of this next week, which, you know, that's going to thrust us into junior high. And I started realizing a couple of years ago that my time where she wants to hang out with me is going to be limited. Right. She's, she's going to want to be yeah. more with her friends. And yeah. so this is an opportunity for me to make choices to spend time with her because I will have more space for myself or for my friends. And that was those were things that I've had to make conscious decisions about. And it sounds like even with you, with your business, there's about making I mean, that's what you guys did. Tell me where I'm wrong with, you know, um, with this whole journey that you've been on the last four years is you've made a conscious decision about your family over what the script of what you're supposed to do or maybe even have social obligations of, we, I want us to be connected with my family, with my wife and my kids and my family. Yeah, absolutely. And they, I, intentionally, they play a big part of everything I do. So, you know, if, if you find my presence online, it's very closely tied to them. I mean, I put pictures of my daughters on the blog. Um, I share my wife and daughter's names with you on, on you know, when I'm mm-hmm. talking to people, like, it's not... Um, my daughter or my wife, it's always Courtney and Milligan and, and Charlie. And so I just uh, incorporate them into what I do now. In the real estate industry, I didn't really have that opportunity, mm-hmm. right? So if we're comparing former life, like it was just crazy. I didn't have the opportunity to tell my tenants, oh, yeah, you know, you know, my daughter Milligan, I wouldn't want to tell that to my tenants. So I've aligned my life with, you know, a little bit more of, I guess, my Midwestern values. And I guess it's unfair, it's unfair to say it's Midwestern values only. That's sort of the place where we come from, where um, if I'm not doing it with them, if they're not along for the ride in some way, then it's not really as worth it to me. I mean, it's almost not worth it at all, but mm-hmm. it's, it's certainly uh, much better if I can include them in the process. Well, because don't you think the script, like how we are kind of told how to measure success, has not, there's not the value on family. 
I mean, they're supposed to be there, but it's more, it's the way, and maybe I'm wrong, so please correct me, but the way that I perceive that script to be is that the family's there, but it's kind of like a, it's like a, it's like a purse. It's like an accessory, yeah. right? And that, that the script with success, it's, it's about the career and who you are and what do you know and who do you know or how much money do you yep. make, right? Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely the pressure. That's definitely the way it's connected. Um, and frankly, I think that's also from the dual income, the dual income, uh, as many dual income households as we have. And, and of course, it's a totally different issue, but broken households that we have. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've sort of trended as a, as a culture towards, um, I guess, maybe a little bit more selfish pursuits of like, how do I accomplish this? How do I achieve this sort of success? Um, and we degrade um, stay-at-home mothers. We degrade mm-hmm. stay-at-home dads. Uh, as a culture, we do. Uh, it's just like, oh, okay, you're you're stay-at-home mom or you're stay-at-home dad. Uh, that's cool. And like, if someone's like, what do you do? And you have to say, well, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom. There's a little bit of um, mm-hmm. cultural like look down upon that, and it's just so it's just so silly. You know what I mean? It just is incredibly. Um, saddening, but there is. So, like to say that there's not, I think is false because there is. It is all about this. What can I do? What have I done with my life? Um, type of thing. And I think that uh, women carried most of that mm-hmm. burden. Obviously, I, I know some stay-at-home dads, and I stayed home home with Milligan in the first year of her life. Um, uh, and so, but you know, I think that's something that, that that women carry a lot more than men, obviously, in our society. But at the same time, men are supposed to go out. You know wake up, go to work, you know, support this, work, 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 support, come home, you know, like, be this disciplinarian, then go to sleep, get up and do it again. It's just, it's, it's the stereotypes on both sides. Um, I guess they've served a purpose over the years, but they just don't seem to fit anymore. Danielle Laporte, when we interviewed her, said, isn't the American dream so stale? She said, there's something so stale about it. And I thought that was like, that was like wonderful. All these stereotypes and this like little dream and this crafted out, it's just very, very, very stale to me. And that the replacement for that is just finding out your own. If you want to be a stay-at-home dad, great. If you want to be a stay-at-home mom, awesome. If you don't, if you want to be a dual-income family and you can balance that and, and that's how you want to operate because that's how you're most fulfilled and you show your kids and when you come home you're so fulfilled that it impacts your kids, then wonderful. Like, just go do it. But the point is do what is is really in your heart don't do don't work two jobs just because you have to keep up with your lifestyle even though one of you desperately wants to stay home with the kids like that's the no-no and so uh it's 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 again living somebody else's script just because you have to do something or keep up with something is the problem not any sort of one way of of living in my mind the the thing that keeps coming up for me as i talk to you adam is that it's about creating the opportunity to choose and it's about choosing for you, not what other people expect or what society tells you you're supposed to do, right? But it's about creating the opportunity for you to choose what works best for your life. Yep. And having the confidence to do so, having the confidence to choose, having, like you said, the flexibility or the agility to choose, um, and having the oh, and recognizing that you do have the power to choose. You know, those are some really big fundamentals. Personal responsibility, you have the power to choose. Flexibility in your life so that you can have the flexibility to choose. Um, th- these are just some really uh, fundamental things that, that I'm trying, again, on a, on a daily and weekly basis to make sure that my life is set up so that even if we fail, we at least got to choose failure. You know what I mean? I wasn't forced into failure 
because somebody else, some other path I was on. Even if I tried something and failed, I chose it, I failed, now I can move on and choose something different. And that's, that's what I really like about our situation right now. Well, it sounds like you're just being an emotional adult versus an emotional child, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're saying, yep. look, I'm, I'm choosing this, and if I fail, okay, what can I do next? Versus, oh, well, this happened to me, right? And that's yep. being more like a child. I think that one quote that sums it up well for me, too, is like, uh, I'll, I'll butcher it, but you'll get the gist of it, is that <laughs> at the end of their life, people don't regret what, like, they don't look back and regret things they did. Mm-hmm. They don't say, man, I really regret that, or I really regret this. Most people can synthesize that and not regret things they did, but they regret things that they didn't do. So they regret, I didn't do this, or I never took the shot to do this, or I never tried this and failed. I never, I never got that opportunity to do this. So they always regret the things that they didn't do, not the things they did do. So flexibility of choice and the personal responsibility of choice means that if you think you're ever going to regret something, to me, that's much more risky than than put doing the safe choice. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, it's more risky to stay at the safe choice than it is to pass up on that opportunity to do something that you know you're going to regret. Because you're going to regret not doing it the rest of your life. Like, that's a long time to regret something. So for me, if I ever look at it and be like, man, I will really regret not trying this opportunity. I will really regret not taking this job. I will really regret not starting this business. Then I usually do it because because I'd rather do it and fail and eliminate that regret than I would just to stay in that nice little comfortable, safe zone that I've built myself for the rest of my life and get to the end of my life and have all these regrets built up. So that's one factor I use to weigh whether I'm going to do something or not, is how intensely I think I'll regret it when I'm older. Do you have any regrets from the last four years? Um, regrets in the last four years? Um, I don't think so. I mean, and, I, and I, again, it's really hard to ask somebody if they regret anything in the last life because everyone's always no, uh, even if they do. <laughs> but if I'm trying to be honest with you, um, you know, I... I I really don't. I mean, I guess I, the, some, the only regrets I have is, is not learning the things I learned faster. <laughs> so, you know, you always look back and you're like, oh, my God, like if I would have just not been as bullheaded, if I would have just learned either a business lesson or a life lesson that much earlier, then uh, then how much different would my life be? But those are, those are kind of childish regrets in my mind because, I, you know, you can't, you can't really go back and change that. But over the last four years, my family and I have got to do a lot. Um, not all of it has been successful, but we've done a very large hodgepodge of things, and uh, and we have big plans for the future. So I really don't have anything to re- to regret in the last four years. And I want to go back as we wrap up this interview to the documentary. Um, I'm fine, thanks. And you're doing a Kickstarter program where, uh, and we'll have links on my website um, where people can join in in helping uh, you do this project. What was it that you learned from this film? That's a, another interesting question. I think that much, much of what I learned was reaffirmed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something about the powerful topic that, that we're unlocking. I think people know. They know the steps that they need to take to sort of realign their life with their passions or not live a complacent life. But I think that the film is really reaffirming, meaning, meaning it like brings up these issues that we're all like, oh, yeah, like, like I did know that. I'm just not living that. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was, once again, the power of environment. So everyone that we talked to, every single person, 
had was either trapped because in part because of their social environment or they were they were had redefined their life in part due to the success of their social environment. And when I say in social environment, I'm going back to talk about the people that they surrounded with themselves with. I mean, you and I just bumped into each other at a Chris Gillenbo meetup in San mm-hmm. Francisco. And that's the reason that I'm on the call today, is because mm-hmm. we bumped into each other in that in that meetup. It would have been easy for us both to say, uh, like, we know Chris, like, it, we don't necessarily need to go to that meetup. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't need to go to that meetup mm-hmm. at all. There was no requirement for me to drive 45 minutes to go up to that meetup. Um, I got to say, like, a, a five words to Chris when I was leaving. I just said, hey, bye, man. Like, I, you know, I didn't really, like, accomplish what most people would think of when they were going to a book meetup with an author. But I knew how, it was, how important it was to go because I knew the type of people that would be there. And I knew that even if it was a pain in the butt to drive up there, that it was going to be worth it um, to myself. And it was sort of going to feed my soul, if you want to be kind of mystical about it. And it was mm-hmm. just going to get me in that environment of people where I'm like, yes, like this is what I want. It's just reaffirming. That's what the documentary was for me every day for six weeks when we were on the road. Every day we sat down with people and we talked about their passions. We talked about why they made certain decisions. We talked about what had changed in their lives. And every day was just reaffirming, like, yes, this is what this is what I should be helping people with. This is what I should be doing. Um, and it was it, the first point, again, to bring this back around, was that environment, the ability to go out to those meetups, to be able to change the people who you're surrounding yourself with on a daily basis, affected everyone for better or worse. So people who were trapped oftentimes said, you know, I don't feel like I have any community. I don't feel like I have mm-hmm. any support. And the people that were um, sort of redef- were successful by their own terms were saying, I can't believe the, how amazing the relationships are in my life. Mm-hmm. So it all came back around that social context. Um, and once again, I mean, it sounds like a broken record, but it's just because the principles aren't the same. It was the, the people's willingness to fail and mm-hmm. their confidence to fail and move forward. I mean, again, time and time again, dozens and dozens and dozens of people said, I was scared. Um, I, was, I was scared out of my mind when I made this decision. And it didn't go how I thought it was going to go. But... I learned from it, I got confident, and I moved on. I mean, that, that, that little snippet of segment, I think, is in every single person's life, mm-hmm. certainly in everybody's success story. So if someone says, I'm successful by their own definition, and you interview them, they're going to have a snippet that says, I was scared out of my mind, I took action and failed, I didn't know what to do, but I finally moved through it and, and did something else, took another action, and then later on I succeeded. Sometimes it's like nine failures, but they at least succeed after that. And it was just so funny to see that exact same pattern in everyone's life. And it's something that I can now say, somebody just turned to me for advice yesterday. They said, I'm so scared. I have a certain number of months of savings. I want to quit my job and pursue this. Uh, what's your suggestion? And, I, and they said, I'm so scared I'm going to fail. Mm-hmm. What do you think I should do? And I said, don't be scared that you're going to fail because I can guarantee you you are going to fail. <laughs> <laughs> like, let me take the scared out of it for you. you. You're going to fail. You're going if you quit your job. You're going to fail at what you're doing now. And I said, this may be, but uh, I believe in you, or I wouldn't be emailing you. I believe in in you. I think that you should make this commitment because it may not be this opportunity that you're thinking about that you succeed in, but it'll be the next one, or the third one, or the fourth one. And if you never quit your job, in this person's case, not everyone needs to quit their job, but in this person's case, if he never quits his job. He's never going to find out what those other things are mm-hmm. because he's going to spend the next 30 years of his life working. He's never going to be able to know what he failed at. Um, 
And uh, so this particular person that was my advice to them is like, don't worry about it, man. You're going to fail. Like, I'll promise. Like, I'll bet money against you. You know what I mean? Because I know you're going to fail in this first endeavor, but you'll learn so much through the process, and it'll be your second or third, because if I was betting on you long term, I'm betting that you'll succeed. If I'm betting on somebody in the short term when they're just getting into this process of, of doing something different when they've done one thing for the past decade, I'm going to bet on them to fail, <laughs> because that is part of everyone's process that I've ever met. Adam, thank you so much. We're about to run out of airtime, so we've got, to, we've got to call it. But thank you so much for being a guest today. And good luck no with problem. your documentary. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is Karen Motokaitis. You've been listening to How She Really Does It on KDRT 95.7 FM. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a rowboat on a lake. She is dreaming. She is drifting. Never been.